This is episode 259 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Regenerative Neurobiology with Dr. Malin Parmar. Hello, everybody. We are Daylon and Arun. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. The Stem Cell Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you enjoy the Stem Cell Podcast, rate us and leave a review. We're always looking for feedback on how the podcast can be improved and for suggestions on guests. Today, we have Dr. Malin Parmar from Lund University. She's on the podcast to talk about her research on neuronal differentiation and Parkinson's disease. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news. That's coming right up. But first, let's chat a little bit about ICCR 2024 coming up in Germany in just a few months. It's, of course, going to be the most clinically focused annual meeting of the ISCR in 20-plus years. Fueled by basic research and unparalleled development of new technologies, we are indeed seeing more stem cell-based clinical trials than at any point in history. The ISCR annual meeting is an incubator, a catalyst for new advances at each point in the research continuum. Join innovators at this stem cell event and forge meaningful connections with our global community of academic and industry leaders. And indeed, we are very excited to be attending ISCR 2024 in Germany in just a few months. And this is an episode that's going to be focusing on one of the preeminent scientists in the ISCR. That's, of course, Dr. Melan Parmar, who has been involved with the society for some time now. Regenerative neurobiology is the title of the show, and we have some papers here on the Roundup that are very relevant to Dr. Parmar's line of work. We're actually going to start off with a cell paper titled Human Fetal Brain Self-Organizes into Long-Term Expanding Organoids. This is something that's actually gotten quite a bit of attention recently. Um, notable authors of this paper include the one and only Hans Klebers, organoid aficionado and extraordinaire himself. And last author is uh, Benedetta Artagiani, both, of course, from the uh, over there in the Utrecht in the Netherlands, Princess Maximo Center for Pediatric Oncology. As we know, um, uh, Dr. Cleavers has also moved on to, to Roche as well. So let's chat a little bit about what this paper is all about. It's It's gotten a lot of press, uh, and rightfully so. This is establishing fetal organoids, fetal brain organoids. Uh, sort of in parallel fashion to what's already been done by many groups from human embryonic stem cells and human-induced pluripotent stem cells. Um, and some of the really striking things about this particular paper are how they've been able to characterize and carry forward these organoids for many, many months and keep them growing long-term. Certainly, there are a number of ethical considerations to think about when it comes to a study like this, utilizing human fetal brain tissue and deriving organoids from them, uh, but let's dive in. So we know that human brain development is this really intricate process. It's you know got this massive neural progenitor expansion uh, where you're actually forming the multicellular tissue architecture, right? And what you can do through not just brain organoids, but all sorts of fetal tissue organoids and just organoids in general is just take a small sample of the somatic tissue and then get those to those clumps of cells to grow very long term. I mean, this is what Dr. Cleavers had demonstrated a long time ago, uh, initially in the gut, has been carried out in a number of different types of tissues. And here they're extending that same approach to the fetal brain. So as of now, 
the until this paper really you know brain organoids could only really be truly established from pluripotent stem cells like i mentioned and here they're actually showing that healthy human fetal brain in vitro can self-organize into organoids or what they call phoebos here which is phenocopying different aspects of in vivo cellular heterogeneity and complex organization so the cell types and the, the connections that you would expect to find in the fetal brain are recapitulated in the fetal organoid or the FIBO and uh, the fetal brain organoid itself. Like I said, the fetal brain organoids can be expanded over long time periods, many, many months, um, many passages, and really a, a exponential expansion in terms of the, the biomatter that you can actually get from the initial brain organoid. These things are able to, to really grow out quite impressively. The growth of these FIBOs actually requires maintenance of tissue integrity, which ultimately is ensuring the production of a extracellular matrix niche, um, ultimately endowing this massive expansion of these FIBOs. And the other important thing was the, the FIBOs, the fetal brain organoids that they derived here, were somewhat heterogeneous, meaning, meaning that they weren't all from the same um, type of brain tissue, from the, the fetal tissue. So you have... Um, different areas of the central nervous system that the organoids were derived from, including the dorsal and the ventral forebrain, uh, as well as, I believe, some spinal cord tissue as well. So, you know, you can preserve their regional identity. These separate organoids from the separate regions of the central nervous system are able to maintain their identity independently. Um, and you can use this to probe aspects of positional identity in the central nervous system. And then the next part of this is the application. And I think this is part of the reason that it ultimately was published in Cell. Is of course, you know, not just the exciting development of these things, these fetal brain organoids, but also their ultimate application um, for the generation of syngeneic mutant FIBO lines for studying different types of brain cancer and pediatric neural disorders. They did this through CRISPR-Cas9, which was uh, very easily intersected with these fetal brain organoids, which that was really cool to see. Um, and ultimately, it's a really unique model system to study uh, you know, central nervous development, brain development, in a way that complements the existing systems that are already out there in human embryonic stem cell-derived brain organoids that we talk about all the time here on the show. I'm actually very surprised that something like this hasn't been done already. Maybe it has something to do with the the ethical considerations, the regulatory hurdles that they had to tackle to actually make something like this happen. But I'm glad we're here. I'm glad we finally have this model system to help better interrogate the development of the human brain. Yeah, this is a cool study. Uh, got a ton of press, I think, probably because the fetal origin of the tissue always spices things up. Um, and yeah, I think that's a critical... Uh, advance here is that showing, as you said, maybe for the first time, I don't know, uh, for the first, I think, notable time that made such a big splash, they're able to get these long-term sustaining organoids. And I, I don't know the answer to your question, but uh, along the lines of, you know, why hasn't this been done before? But I would guess that a lot of the lessons we learned from the in vitro culture of pluripotent stem cell-derived neuronal cell types namely the recipes that sustain them and allow them to proliferate and, uh, you know, become all the different derivatives uh, specialized. I think that a lot of those lessons were applied here. Uh, I don't know. I'm not, I think this is a great study. I, I, I'm kind of left in a place like, okay, where, where do we do with this? I, I like the idea of having like a, I guess you would call it the, an adult stem cell 
or fetal stem cell or whatever, not a pluripotent stem cell derived culture system that can, you know, uh, be sustained over the long term. So pretty much one off, you get some fetal brain tissue and you can set up these cultures and systems and platforms. So I think that it's robust uh, for experimentation. But I think the most exciting thing right now in in vitro culture of neuronal cell types is still pluripotent cells. I don't think anyone would really disagree with me there. Uh, I I would be really interested to see how these fetal brain organoids are used as a kind of a, a benchmark for in vitro culture. You know, with the bona fide cells, you could explore things like whether or not that maturation paradigm is the same. You know, the great challenge in neuronal differentiation from pluripotent stem cells is, of course, as we talked about just in the last episode, is getting these uh, to, to advance to later maturation stages where either phenotypes or disease will manifest. So I wonder if these fetal brain organoids can mature uh, on the same time scale as a in vivo. So that, that'd be a really important question, I think, that you could use to answer these. Uh, I think they're still a bit limited in terms of what type of organoids you can get from the fetal brain. Here, we're talking about forebrain where you know we talk about assembloids in the pluripotent stem cell system where we're getting multiple cell types. So I know you, you, you alluded to the spinal cord tissue there, uh, but I think the majority of the, of the cell types they're working here with were forebrain. So I think this is a, a big splash. Uh, I think there is a lot that could be done uh, on this platform, but um, you know, I'm still, I, I would say, a lot more excited about pluripotent stem cell-derived systems. Yeah, I think we're maybe we're a little biased towards the the pluripotent stem cell applications. I I agree with you. I mean, on the contrast, that there are certain folks who just simply do not believe <laughs> in the applications of pluripotent stem cells. They think they're a completely artificial cell type, and having something like this, which is truly primary tissue, primary tissue derived organoids, I think those folks might think this is the only way to go. I completely agree with you. I think the real power of this in my mind, maybe for both of us, is that this could be a benchmark, a really important benchmark to compare your pluripotent stem cell-derived neuronal uh, organoid cultures, because this is the real deal, right? This is derived from true human fetal tissue. Um, and I do think there are some other things that they want to to do with this that they actually discuss in limitations of the, the paper. I think one thing that would be really cool, they alluded to, would be deriving these fetal brain organoids from disease tissues, early fetal disease tissues, to see how that impacts their developmental trajectory. So I think there's a lot of um, interesting applications for this kind of work, but I think the other part of this work in contrast to the pluripotent stem cell culture is that this may be a little bit more heavily regulated you know and uh, ethically considered right because anybody can really do ips culture now right you don't even have to use human embryonic stem cells to derive um, brain organoids from and ipscs are much more limited in terms of their ethical considerations you know folks around the world can use them but stuff like this when it comes to primary fetal brain tissue uh, i think there's a lot more a lot more restrictions when it comes to using this kind of stuff. Agree. Yeah, I mean, access. That's going to be the thing. This is very niche. It's going to be accessible to to few, although the the expand expandability, uh, self-renewal, I guess, uh, these cells means they can be distributed. So definitely a lot there, but pretty niche, I would say. Highly regulated, as you said. The opposite, although we're staying in neural, 
I got a story that's kind of on the other side of the pole here. Instead of fetal, we're talking about adult disease. Um, and instead of niche, we're talking about something that I think we're all very familiar with, and that's COVID, right? Um, and specifically the neurological manifestations of COVID that we're all aware of. I think very commonly, a lot of people could tell you about how they had the experience of the anosmia or dysgeusia, however you say that word. That's the loss of smell and, and alteration of taste. I didn't have that one, but that, I mean, I'm glad because that would have really freaked me out. A lot of people I know uh, struggle with that, but also more, I guess, severe, you could say, uh, manifestation, seizure, stroke. Uh, there was a lot of Guillain-Barre Guillain syndrome. Um, and more recently, it's it's emerged that uh, patients who uh, had struggled with long COVID are also at increased risk for neurological and psychiatric disorders. So it's a, it's a really big deal, I think. You know, we were so focused on the acute phase there, death effectively, uh, and now that we're out of the woods there, I, I would hope uh, we have to wrestle with all these long-term phenotypes you know, the manifestations and increased risk. Uh, and of course, based on the, those phenotypes and the presentation, it was believed that there was this tropism, uh, you know, neuronal tropism. Uh, and Madeline Lancaster and, and another paper at the same, the same issue, uh, Cell Stem Cell back in 2020 from UPenn, Scripps and Sanford Burnham also showed, uh, like Madeline Lancaster's group, that cord plexus uh, and the central nervous system were permissive um, and really susceptible, highly susceptible to infection with SARS-CoV-2. So that was like, I don't know about problem solved, but it was like, okay, there we go. There's the entry point uh, into the into this neural uh, sphere, neural milieu, and may account for some of those neuronal manifestation or neurological. Uh, but it's still controversial as to as to what cell type specifically uh, COVID-2 targets, all right? So this is a story from uh, the lead here, Xu Bing Chen, who just continue, continues to pump it out. Uh, but in collaboration with uh, some other big hitters, Rob Schwartz, who's a well Cornell, so David Ho, who's up at Columbia now, and Lorenz Studer, of course, who works closely with Shubing and a lot of things, uh, specifically here, they were looking at, makes sense, dopaminergic neurons. Um, they use this platform to explore the tropism, uh, SARS-CoV-2, and show that indeed midbrain dopamine neurons, and importantly, not cortical neurons. So it wasn't this like pan-neuronal tropism, it's specifically uh, midbrain dopamine, also choroid plexus, of course, which was known, but not cortical. Uh, Neurons are susceptible, permissive to SARS-CoV-2 infection, and that infection triggers this inflammatory and uh, cellular senescence response. Uh, the group then went on, as Xu Bing is wont to do, to do this high-throughput screening, um, identified a bunch of already approved drugs that can rescue the cellular senescence. Uh, they, they mitigate or preclude the infection in the first place. Um, and they also here, and this is the key to you know lend some kind of clinical relevance, they uh, identified this signature of inflammation, cellular senescence, the same thing they saw in culture, uh, all as well as low levels of SARS-CoV-2 transcripts in the actual substantia nigra of CoV-2 patients. You know that's the the store of these 
dopaminergic neurons. So evidence that SARS-CoV-2 was actually in the patient brains in the region where these dopaminergic neurons are and cause inflammation. Uh, also found reduced dopaminergic neurons in uh, patients who had severe COVID. Um, so these are patients all of whom presumably died from COVID and they saw the disease was present in the brain. So uh, this is like a, a pretty straightforward, but I think really elegant study with, I think, tremendous uh, implications and impact, um, suggesting that it's this specific cellular component, right? These dopaminergic neurons that are also affected in Parkinson's disease, right? Which is really scary because you wonder now if there's this occult or latent PD potential in like millions of people that didn't have it before. Uh, anyone who may have suffer, suffered from one of these neurological uh, manifestations of COVID-2 may be at risk for Parkinson's, Arun? I mean, I don't know. I wouldn't say that that's the direct takeaway from the study, but uh, certainly among the implications. That is a potential connection that you can definitely make here and has been floated around on the Twitterverse or Xverse, whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah, I mean, whenever, anytime you're talking about dopaminergic neurons, that is the that is the ultimate connection that you're making with Parkinson's, right? So we'll see. I mean, hopefully that doesn't come to fruition many, many years down the road, but we'll have to definitely keep an eye on those individuals who have been affected by the disease. Um, a few things to consider here. Obviously, one, just reflecting on the productivity of Shubing, your neighbor there. She is just unbelievable. This is Shubing's world. We're just living in it. I feel like we're covering one of her papers every single roundup here on the show. So congratulations again, Dr. Chen. Um, a few other things to think about. And I, I actually was reflecting on the parallels between this sort of work and the cardiac work that was actually coming out during the, the time of COVID as well. Because, you know, iPS-derived cardiomyocytes were also used to model cardiac-specific SARS-CoV-2 infection. Um, and one of the limitations here in this paper that was also reflected on the, the cardiac studies was that the detection of the SARS-CoV-2 viral antigen in the primary tissues is still controversial, even to this day. And in fact, they mentioned it here, um, they're still trying to generate electron microscopy to actually assess evidence for the direct viral infection in the substantia nigra neurons. This is the same deal with the cardiac. I mean, there's just not a whole lot of direct evidence through electron microscopy, for example, of SARS-CoV-2 actually entering cardiomyocytes and cardiac tissues. So this is still an ongoing area of study to figure out what's the exact cellular target and cellular mechanisms of infection in both of these primary tissues, both brain and, and cardiac. Um, one other thing I thought that was also very interesting here, and this is also a reflection on this concept of drug repurposing that we talked about on the previous show. One of the drugs that they identified in their screen to actually allevi alleviate SARS-CoV-2 infection and, and um, the downstream neuronal manifestations was imatinib. Imatinib, this amazingly popular hallmark tyrosine kinase inhibitor that's been around for many, many years now, which is one of those hallmark treatments for CML. That happened to be the drug that actually alleviated the um, uh, the SARS-CoV-2 induced senescence of the dopaminergic neurons. So, hey, you never know what you might come up with in this these drug repurposing studies. And I'm assuming that's some kind of off-target effect that imatinib is happening because I can't think of the exact mechanistic reason as to why that would happen. But hey, I mean, these are small molecules. They have all sorts of off-target effects, right? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I guess uh, it's a win if you had CML while you caught COVID and were being treated with a magnet, might be scared the Parkinson's or for that matter, metformin, right? All those pre-diabetics. But uh, I think, yeah, that was the the bummer for me about this is, of course, I mean, what what do we expect, right? You can't rescue the effects of the infection after the infection has been cleared. Uh, but that to me was why I, I had such a, like a, a pessimistic view after this is like, okay, now that we're through the actual acute phase of, of the, the pandemic, now we have to live with the, the mess it left behind. And, and there's really, I don't know that there's a way to prevent, um, you know, those, those people who may already have been affected by this neurotropism, but certainly moving forward in the future, it's something that we can watch out for. Um, I don't know. For me also, the big takeaway was that this, I, I was so comfortable in the idea that this was predominantly a vascular disease, uh, you know, based on even with the neurological manifestations of stroke, you know, you could attribute that to cardiovascular and also even the cord plexus. I don't know. For me, it was like this idea of the cerebrospinal fluid. I don't know. It's something that conveys fluid similar to vessels, but I, I think the 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 jury is back here now with the idea that there's very deliberate I think neuronal uh, uh, tropism and neurological manifestations that cannot be denied here, um, and I guess that's the important thing here. And to your point about whether or not the the virus directly is shown to affect in the body, they they made a glancing blow at it here, perhaps not definitive, but I think that's what's the, the value of these in vitro studies. You know, the whole point where we started here. With the platform is to to show as many papers showed in the first days following covid that this cell type that cell type the other can is permissive to covid infection if it's permissive in vivo i'm going to assume that it could also happen i mean in vitro i'm assuming it can also happen in vivo so i'm going to i'm going to assume that we don't need to wait for the electron microscopy that this is real and it's something that we need to keep our eye on with all these long covid patients i don't know how you work them up but uh, definitely something that we should be aware of yeah, definitely. I think this is something that's not going to go away. And we're going to have these long COVID clinics popping up across the world, across every single hospital. I know we have them here at, at my institution. And I think this is just going to be a, a growing concern um, as these individuals get older, you know, just making, just keeping an eye on their neurological manifestations of this disease for long COVID. And who knows, maybe this is even something that, I don't know, Blue Rock might want to get into as well. Hint, hint. Um, Moving on to another cell stem cell paper. This is uh, very different from, uh, actually, maybe not even that different from the studies that we were talking about, because this is another model system, another organoid model system that was actually also used as a SARS-CoV-2 model. Um, the title of this paper is Human Conjunctiva Organoids to Study Ocular Surface Homeostasis and Disease. This is another Hans Cleaver's paper. Congrats again, Dr. Cleavers. And the first author here is someone who we've actually talked about on the show previously, uh, from the Cleavers lab, Marie Bagnier Holloway, um, who has established a number of different organoid models and that we've discussed here on the show. So again, another organoid system, another primary derived organoid system. This is not stem cell or IPS uh, pluripotent stem cell derived organoids. These are primary tissues, uh, primary tissues from the conjunctiva, from 
from the uh, inside of the eye to actually make these long-term lasting, long-lasting um, organoids, both from mouse and from human. So let's uh, dive right into it. So we know that there's this conjunctival epithelium that's actually covering the eye and has two different cell types, these mucus-producing goblet cells and the water-secreting keratinocytes, which actually present mucins on their apical surface and I think are involved in moistening the eye and that sort of thing. So here they're actually describing a, a long-term expansion, similar to the first story, long-term expanding organoids and an air-liquid interface that's actually representing both mouse and human conjunctiva. Then they actually characterize the organoids that they made here um, using a bunch of single cell expression analysis um, of comparing these tissues to other primary and cultured human conjunctiva and showing that the keratinocyte copulations actually express a bunch of different antimicrobial peptides and identifies these conjunctival tough cells, a subpopulation found in these organoids. Um, and this was their foundation to the second half of the study, where if you have some antimicrobial properties, maybe you can utilize those in the context of addressing disease and infection, that sort of thing, right? So they found that this IL-4, IL-13 exposure increased the goblet and tough cells differentiation and actually modified the conjunctiva secretome. Um, and then moving on beyond that, their human NGR NGFR-positive basal cells were actually identified as these bipotent conjunctiva stem cells, so they can turn into multiple cell types from these stem cell populations. Um, and here's, I think, where things got really interesting and probably why it elevated to the level of cell stem cell, is ultimately they you know, utilize some of these properties and some of their observations to uh, treat these conjunctival cultures and organoids with uh, different types of pathogens, different types of viral pathogens, including the herpes simplex virus 1, HSV1, human adenovirus, and relevant to what we were just talking about, SARS-CoV-2, which is, you know, this is thought to be one of the avenues of infection for SARS-CoV-2 is actually via the eye and the uh, ultimately, you know, traveling down to the nasal cavity and all this kind of stuff. So uh, perhaps very relevant model system to actually study SARS-CoV-2 tropism. We were just talking about that, right? So, and then, you know, the usual stuff, you treat the, the organoid system with the, um, the, the viral agent, and then you try to rescue the infection, right? Just what we show, showed in the previous paper from Shubing and colleagues. The herpes simplex 1 virus infection was reversed by a cyclovir addition, which is, you know, makes sense. This is an antiviral. Um, whereas the adenoviral infection, which actually lacks an appropriate drug therapy, was inhibited by another type of uh, antiviral compound called cytofovir. And then they uh, they looked at the transcriptional programs that were actually induced by the human herpes simplex virus 1 and the adenovirus, uh, compared their transcriptional responses to the different viral pathogens. And then the, the very last thing that they did here was something that I think was a little bit far out there, um, still trying to wrap my brain around exactly why they were doing this. They they transplanted these conjunctival organoids. So they generated the human conjunctival organoids and then transplanted them into the mouse, um, ultimately showing that these human conjunctival organoid cultures can enable the study of uh, pathophysiology. All right, That's both what they showed in vitro and also to some extent in vivo in the transplantation culture. So really just a broad study, very broad study, just ranging from the initial derivation of the organoid itself to the characterization transcriptionally, and then ultimately the application, which is the infection of the virus and then 
treating it with the antiviral compounds to actually rescue the infection. So a really, really broad range study. And I'm sure this was a very long multi-year uh, piece of work, but um, absolutely reflected in the the caliber of the study that it's a yeah, I mean, why did they put the human in the mouse, Arun? Because they could. Because they could. Yeah. All right? And that's what sure. he does. He does what he can, um, and he doesn't stop. Uh, this this story, as you said, years in the making, uh, and a follow-up, actually. Uh, first author on this, Marie Bannier. Hello. Sorry about the pronunciation. All all the vowels are, like, right next to each other in that name. So I'm not doing a good job, but I, I'm an American. Anyway, Marie Bannier. Uh, was also first author on that paper just about three years ago now. Uh, that was the lacrimal organoids where they generated the organoids against similar methods and show that they could generate tears. So this is a, a story uh, from Marie there um, with Hans Clevers that, that she's been working on for, for probably close to five years. And this conjunctiva one is like the feather in her cap for defending her thesis room, if you can believe that. So these two cell stem cell papers that made a big splash about the eye, and she's moving on, uh, co-corresponding on this, so presumably starting her own lab, I would guess, uh, some kind of ophthalmology tie-in here, because she's really focused on the eye. Uh, and as you, you said, the, the range of this, uh, going from derivation all the way to application, I think uh, speaks to the maturation of this work. Uh, you know, there's still some ways to go, of course. Uh, you talked about in vivo, you know, in vivo, these components of the eye are actually closely associated with a lot of other cell types, namely, you know, the endothelium, stromal cells, also the immune component, as you're alluding to there, is critical. So I don't think we're at the point of making, I don't know, whatever you make with these in vivo, uh, making that in vitro completely, but I think that it's certainly um, evidence of the maturation of the work and creating, I think, a whole field out of these eye organoids uh, and demonstrating that they have some really important applications. Yeah, I think a lot of different applications here. The transplantation study is still a little confusing to me. Maybe we'll have to have Marie back on the show or on the show to chat more about that. If you're listening, Marie, we'd love to have you. I love talking about your work. Um, but indeed, I think a lot of new avenues that are opened up as a result of these these studies. Anytime that you're establishing a model system, you become the expert in the applications of that model system, right? And I think this is an amazing foundation for a new lab to come uh, from Marie's work, right? She is the expert. You know, they, they've, they've, she, she set this system up, and she, above anybody else, knows how to use it, right? Maybe Hans too, right? But uh, a few, like you're saying, there's a few limitations here as as well. Um, you mentioned one of them. It's it's a reductionist model. Right, it's not really encompassing all the blood vessels, nerves, stromal cells, immune cells that are actually present in the real deal, but are absent in these organoids. But I'm sure they'll be building those cultures into the model system pretty soon. Yeah, I mean, I, I just realized. I think my new theory is Hans. He went to Roche because he just ran out of organoids to make. I don't think there's anything left. But uh, I guess Marie is gonna carry the torch, so to speak. We'll wait to see what she does. And yes, please get on the show, Marie. Open your lab with a splash, get you to talk about it. Um, anyway, moving on to, to something that's not so niche as these lacrimar conjunctiva, the heart, right? This is the kind of target number one in uh, 
pluripotent stem cells, but this is not exactly a pluripotent stem cell story. It's more of a developmental story, but I think it speaks to all that potential that we hoped for in the heart that has not been realized tragically. Arun, get to work. Um, anyway, this is about epicardium uh, and the, the difference, the delta between fish and mammals, effectively uh, zebrafish, which is Arun's favorite model, um, which we, we've talked about a lot, has this capacity to regenerate the heart throughout adulthood, uh, unlike the mammals where it's been shown in, in mice that they actually can regenerate, but only in the early first week or so neonatal stages. Uh, but uh, in, in the zebrafish, uh, the, that regeneration is mediated by the epicardium, which is this layer of cells that envelop the heart muscle uh, and are critical for regeneration, but also really important during heart development. Um, uh, in the context of adult injury, heart injury, these epicardial cells are activated. They re-enter the cell cycle. They re-express a lot of these developmental genes. Um, and they're among the first cell types that migrate to the injury. They spit out a bunch of extracellular matrix. Uh, and then they also act as like a signaling hub coordinating the activity and signaling between other, other cell types in the, in the region. Um, and then they, they invade the actual subepicardial tissue generating perivascular cells and fibroblasts. So they support this regenerative process, both like as a orchestrator, um, as well as directly by secreting proteins and having cells that actually contribute to the architecture of that repaired heart. So, uh, Across a lot of species, the whole idea of regeneration, I think, is steeped in this notion of the reactivation uh, of a developmental program. And that's because a lot of the factors that you see uh, expressed during regeneration are also expressed during development. And that's true of the epicardium as well. And also functionally speaking, that all those processes that I just described uh, during regeneration in the fish. Uh, that's that's kind of what they do in development. Uh, they do very similar things. But this idea that regeneration is really just the act reactivation of a developmental program remains controversial. And that's in part because in mouse or in mammals, uh, using mouse as an example, uh, the markers that you find in the during embryonic heart development versus injury activated uh, develop our regeneration or response in the epicardium are very different. So the question there is that is the mouse or our mammals different in regeneration or response versus development because they've lost this capacity uh, to, to regenerate and in the fish, it's the same. And that's important because if so, then it's really just a matter of re-restoring or recapitulating that developmental program, endowing the adult cells with the developmental program. So the question that, that was asked here by Tatiana Sauka Spengler and Paul Riley here at Oxford is using the fish as an example, are the adult and developmental programs the same in epicardium? And it's important because of what I just alluded to. Uh, so they compared the transcriptome, also the epigenome of the developing epicardia, as well as regenerating epicardia in the fish. And what they found is that they're different. I mean, bottom line, they're different. Uh, looking at specifically these epicardial enhancer 
elements and using them to infer the genetic programs that drive uh, development or regeneration of the heart. Uh, they show that these were di really different and uh, then built on that to show that the specific program that's key to regeneration in, in the zebrafish, if they target that using CRISPR uh, here, showing that uh, if they target HIF-1AB, NRF-1, TBX-2B, and ZBTB7A, like none of which I've heard about, maybe HIF-1AB, although that specific one I haven't heard about. So these are kind of new to me. Um, they knock those out and they show that the, the, the recovery, the regeneration is impaired, right? So I, I, the takeaway for me conceptually is huge. The science here is strong uh, and, and solid. The, there's some work left to be done, I think, to, to really build out um, the link, mainly the question of whether or, or not loss of the other program, the developmental program, has a role. Um, but the key here conceptually, I think, is, is really important, which is that it's my takeaway is that it's not, we can't just, you know, enforce a developmental program in mammals necessarily and restore that regenerative phenotype that we see in, in zebrafish. Um, that maybe it's a related but independent uh, pathway that converges on some of the same cellular phenotypes and transcriptional uh, uh, circuits, but uh, I think it's important to recognize that this is a it's a it's a whole new process. Yeah, there's a lot of different elements here. I think it's beyond just the developmental programming, just at the genetic level. It's the epigenetic level that you really have to take into consideration here. And this is, I think, one of the major strengths of the study. I totally agree with you. I think it's more than just putting in a gene, putting in a particular uh, enhancer or whatever from the zebrafish into the human and then restoring cardiac regeneration in that way. I think you have to intertwine that with some of the epigenetic pathways as well. Um, I, I really like the study. And as you might expect with any sort of cardiac regeneration zebrafish study, Ken Paz has cited about 15 times here, which, you know, not surprising. Um, really cool work. I think one thing to to think about is and reflect on is the epicardium, this you know, layer of the pericardium kind of on the outside of the heart, which initially was kind of cast aside in favor of the more sexy myocardium, this muscular layer of the heart that does the the dirty work, the, all the, the work of pumping the blood throughout the body. But now we know through years and decades of intricate basic science work, many of studies have been done in DevCell actually, that the epicardium has an incredibly important role in regeneration and restoration of proper cardiac function, especially early on during the developmental process. So, um, so shout out to you, epicardial folks. Um, much love. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I like to think of the 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 failure of epicardium to restore the heart in mammals as, you know, just something that was lost over the course of evolution and that became maladaptive, became more of a stopgap. Uh, and if we could perhaps maybe reactivate some of these uh, genes and transcription factors that we see in the zebrafish in this independent adult regenerative circuit, maybe we could skew a few of those epicardial progenitors away from fibroblasts and maybe to more constructive fates uh, and actually solve this thing once and for all. Arun, again, I say, get to work, my friend. But for now, 
We're going to have to forget about the heart and focus on the mind with our guest, Malin Palmer, who's going to talk about her work with neural differentiation in just a minute. But before we get there, I have a quick message from Stem Cell Technologies, who invites you to find a pathway into the peripheral nervous system with Stem Diff Neural Crest Differentiation Kit. Whether you need Schwann cells, sensory neurons, or sympathetic neurons, StemDiff Neural Crest Differentiation Kit enables high purity generation of neural crest precursors from human pluripotent stem cells. Learn more at www.stemcell.com slash N-C-K-I-T. All right, everybody. With us today, we have a special guest from Lund University. Professor Malin Parmar, who's also New York Stem Cell Foundation Robertson investigator. Dr. Parmar's research aims to understand cell fate specification in the developing brain and in human neural progenitor cells using cell-based models of neuronal differentiation. Her lab's current focus is to learn how to direct and efficiently drive controlled differentiation of human stem cells into subtype-specific neurons. The ultimate aim there is to develop these cells and technologies for use in brain repair with a specific focus on Parkinson's disease. Dr. Palmer, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. Yeah, great to be on. Yeah, thanks for being here, Dr. Parmar. Let's start off with the the big picture. You're, of course, working on bringing cell-based therapies for neurodegenerative diseases to the clinic. But I mean, in, in addition to the glamorous translational work that you're doing, you're also studying the basic mechanisms of brain development using pluripotent stem cells. So before we actually dive into the, the details of the clinical trial, could you actually give us a broad overview of the, the basic developmental neurobiology studies that your lab is focused on and just the overall scope of your lab? Yeah, so I don't know how glamorous is translational science is, but uh, for my experimental science, uh, I'm a developmental biologist by training, and I, my PhD was on forebrain development. Um, and I've always been fascinated how how these processes are, are controlled, how cells are very similar, all of, all of a sudden become different. Um, and this is what we used, uh, a question that I worked on 20 years ago and that I still work on today. Um when it comes to stem cells, it becomes an in interesting mix between developmental neurobiology and stem cell biology, because what we learn from the developing brain, we can test and see if we can use the same signals and mechanisms to control the differentiation of stem cells. So in a way, stem cell differentiation is also a type of developmental biology where we mimic the cues in the developing human brain into our stem cell cultures. So my lab do a lot of this kind of parallel, how do cells form and develop in the brain and how does this happen outside the brain when we either take them from the brain and culture them outside the brain or when we create them from uh, stem cells or via direct reprogramming of skin cells, for example. So that's the one main focus. The other main focus is, is brain repair. And for that, the cells need to go back into the brain eventually. So there's also a lot of basic experimental questions regarding how what happens to an immature new cell when it hits a existing neural circuit how does it integrate what cells do they communicate with what do the old cells in the brain think about the new cells being placed there do they recognize that these are new and young do they train them do they kick them out of the networks and things like that so so kind of the stem cell biology part is in the middle spanning then the developmental aspects and the more neuroscience aspects 
Yeah, I mean, you're, you're like uh, a lot of the leaders that are guiding the translation of stem cell-based therapies in the present day in that, as you said, I mean, your your initial interest was a basic developmental biology and current interest still, a basic developmental biology of the brain. And I think also like so many in that generation of scientific leaders that were coming into their own at that time, at the turn of the millennium, when pluripotent stem cells were, were first arrived, um, they provided a means for unprecedented insight into human neurodevelopmental, in your case, neurodevelopment and uh, disease, and that was irresistible. Um, and here you are in, in the midst of driving transformative changes in the way we approach disease, which I know maybe your initial interest was the basic science, but it's all ultimately about the, the human condition and disease and repair. Um, and we're going to come back to around to that uh, work specifically in, in just a minute. But first, just more generally speaking, um, as someone who has traveled that arc uh, from you know the initial days of derivation, where the questions were all so basic, just how do we get this cell into that, and how do they work together? Um, what do you think uh, has been the most or one of the most pivotal steps in advancing the field to this point? And also, what is or what are uh, the greatest challenges left to overcome? So I'm actually older than what you <laughs> the way you say, because my work didn't start with the big changes in the field of being able to grow embryonic stem cells. Uh, I was a PhD student when, when it became possible to take cells out of the brain and culture them, and we call them neurospheres normally at that time. Uh, so there was very, very basic questions regarding what happens if you take a cell from one area of the brain, take it out in the culture dish. Does it remember where you come from? Probably not, but it turned out that they did. But at the time, we thought that once you take them out of the brain, they have no positional information. And then if you take them from one region and put them back into another region of the brain, what happens to them? So it was a lot of these moving cells around and studying their phenotype in vitro and in vivo. And from that, we learned a lot about what happens to a brain cell outside the environment of the brain. Um, and then it became possible to culture human embryonic stem cells. And that was, of course, a groundbreaking discovery in the field, especially with the human embryonic stem cells or the iPS cells, because all of a sudden we had unlimited access to uh, the starting material to generate, in theory, any type of neuron in the brain from these uh, stem cells. When that field developed, there's a lot of kind of technical aspects that made it possible. Um, so when I was a postdoc at the Institute for Stem Cell Research in Edinburgh, uh, they had just, Austin Smith was there and had just started to culture uh, human embryonic stem cells. But every time we passes them, we just have fewer and fewer cells. It was really hard to get enough cells to do an experiment. So the rock inhibitor... Uh, for example, was a massive uh, change because all of a sudden, instead of doing this manual passaging where you cut the cells, you lost the cells, they died in each passage, you could generate a sufficient number of cells to actually do an experiment. Um, and then uh, in terms of the field of uh, dopamine neurons, which is my main area of expertise today, we really tried a lot of different ways to direct stem cells into dopamine neurons, but uh, our group, like other groups in the field, were unsuccessful until, again, developmental biology findings uh, that show that the origin of the floor plate cells, of the dopamine neurons are the floor plate cells. And we need we knew that we needed to go from embryonic stem cell to floor plate to dopamine neuron rather than from 
embryonic stem cell to neuroepithelial cell to dopamine neuron. So there's both kind of technical and biological advancements that, that propel this field uh, forward, but one shouldn't underestimate the, the technical aspects and the ease of um, culturing cells today compared to what it was like 20 years ago. Yeah, all glory to the rock inhibitor, the small molecule <laughs> that it's made all of our lives so much easier over the years, right? Um, so shifting, you know, fast forwarding a little bit, diving a little bit more into the the recent work that you've been doing. We actually recently covered your your cell stem cell paper that you published, which actually discussed this preclinical quality, safety, and efficacy of the ESC derived cells you're making for the treatment of Parkinson's stem PD. This trial that you're you're working on. Um, I mean, this data is supporting one of a handful of trials in this area. I mean, you know, there's stuff going around the world in this particular area using stem cell derived dopaminergic neurons for treating Parkinson's. We actually, maybe you know, we had a show over at Blue Rock Therapeutics in New York a little while ago, which is, of course, also working on a parallel approach. Um, full disclosure, my boss is Clive Svensson here at Cedar Sinai, oh. who I'm sure you know very well. Yes, yeah, he's dabbling in the area too. So could you talk a little bit more about this preclinical study that you did in cell stem cell that was published recently and how it's ultimately supporting the work of the clinical trial? Yeah, so this is uh, studies and experiments that we've done over a large number of years to convince ourselves and regulatory authorities that the cell product that we make uh, is safe and efficient to use in humans. And I think it's very, very important as this field is developing that all the clinical trials that are initiated actually present their preclinical data leading up to the approval of those trials. Um, we all need to learn from each other's trials and we need to give access to those uh, preclinical data. Um, that's absolutely necessary to propel the, the field forward. So to publish these data sets, uh, both kind of serves as for education and scrutiny, but it also shows uh, the massive effort that you need to undertake to go from an experimental finding, a protocol in the lab to a clinical trial. So I think that they're, they're great. And also the, the other Parkinson trials that are ongoing have also published uh, similar papers uh, leading up to their trial. Yeah, I mean, talking about uh, recent papers in our roundup, you've really been uh, heavily featured. We uh, just in the last episode covered an article uh, that you played a prominent role in this collaboration with Jurgen Noblik, where you guys modeled the human dopaminergic system with the midbrain striatum cortex assemblage. I mean, love that paper. Um, not least of which because you had organoids dosed with cocaine. I mean, I was just picturing these organoids going on a cocaine bender. That was a little anthropomorphication there. Uh, a bit of an aside, but all joking aside, this is a watershed, in my opinion, because it not only enables the interrogation of the molecular pathophysiology of diseases like Parkinson's and in a tidy model in vitro, um, but could also, as I alluded to, model the mechanisms underlying addiction and other perturbations in the reward pathway. Now, clearly, I, I think... You were probably more involved with the Parkinson's end of that, although if not, please uh, be feel free to disclose. But um, regarding that Parkinson's end, at least, uh, why don't you color in on on how those uh, assembloids can be leveraged in these kind of accessory experiments uh, to to advance treatments for Parkinson's disease? Yes, yeah, so I think 
Um, organoids are very good model systems to study either aspects of development, because in Sweden, where I work, we actually have access to human fetal tissue of certain ages that we can do some types of experiments on, but you can never really get the experimental detail and control or the extent over the extended time periods that you need to fully understand later development of the cells or the function development of the functional maturity and things. We tend to do this in xenograph models where you put human cells into the rodent brain. And, and that is good because you really hook the cells up in neural networks. But it's not a very tractable system. And the organoids, where you can kind of mimic aspects or reasons of the human brain, how they interact with each other, you can really get closer and closer to set up scenarios that will then um, inform you about how processes work in the brain. So in terms of cell therapy for Parkinson's disease, we can study the dopamine neurons themselves in ventral midbrain organoids, but for them to be therapeutically uh, active, they we need to know how do they connect with their target cells, how are they regulated, and those things you can study in assembloids or connectoids. Then it comes a, a lot of questions. The field is moving a lot into autologous therapies where we use patient-specific cells. And there it's a lot of questions to ask what happens if you put uh, a cell from a deceased, deceased patient into a deceased brain. And then you can kind of move cells from an organoid from a healthy brain and a deceased brain and do this uh, mix and match experiments. And also here, the other cell types in the brain are important because in Parkinson's for disease, for example, it's a spreading of the pathology. You know, it involves other cell types like the glial cell in the brain. So you can never study this cells in isolation and the organoid system is a, it's a very good model system to study both development, functional maturation, but also uh, disease-related pathologies. Yeah, it's a really powerful model system that's just taken the, the field by storm recently. We've had a few conversations with Sergi Poshka here on the show as well, who's certainly pioneered this area. Um, but in addition to the pluripotent stem cell side of things, like you mentioned, your group is also exploring uh, direct reprogramming and translational applications there. For example, you actually have this bioarchive paper that uses this 3D microculture engineering approach to enable intracerebral transplantation of mature neurons that are directly reprogrammed from patient fibroblasts. And I mean, there's certainly pros and cons in comparison to using the pluripotent stem cell approach, if you're comparing direct reprogramming to that. But do you think direct reprogrammed neurons might become a, a, like a parallel cell therapy down the road, uh, parallel cell therapy to the stem cell-based approach? So what do you think about that kind of alternative? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's hard to predict where the field will go, but I think that in the future, there will be uh, more options for cell therapy. So there won't be just one stem cell therapy for Parkinson's disease. There'll be many. And which one you opt for that is recommended for you depends on the type of disease you have, the stage of the disease, uh, when the intervention is taken, et cetera. Um, if you talk about and patient specific treatments are have a lot of um, uh, pros, uh, of course. When it comes to iPS cells versus direct reprogramming, Direct reprogramming, if we can learn how to handle it, I think is a better option. The problem is that we can't handle the conversion process properly. We can't make neurons are equally good. They we work for 10 years to get them to survive in the brain. So this bioarchive paper is uh, you know, the the crown of eight years of failure and a year and a half of successful experiment. So so it, there's a long way left. But if you can directly reprogram neurons, 
uh, that do not have a disease phenotype, I think they are a good alternative for autologous uh, therapies. And with a direct conversion, those projects also lead to another area of the field that I work on and many other people have taken on is in vivo conversion. Because if you can convert cells directly in the dish, you could potentially also do so in the brain. So in the future, maybe the best alternative is to just convert resident glial cells into neurons directly in the brain. Yeah, I mean, I I, I agree 100% with what you said there in terms of, I mean, it's obvious, I guess. There's going to be a lot of alternative therapies, a lot of approaches that are kind of in the same vein, but they're going to have nuance and there's going to be some differences and options. Um, and in terms of like who has custody or ownership of those options, I just want to circle around um, a bit. And I mean, in terms of like funding is really what it comes down to. You, you and I both uh, share a relationship with the NYSEF, the New York Stem Cell Foundation. They funded my postdoc and you were awarded this coveted Robertson Investigator Grant, which is meant to enable high-risk, high-reward research. You were awarded that in 2016, and I would be willing to venture that it paid off. Uh, high risk, but the reward has been significant um, and very fruitful, uh, particularly in the shape, I, I'm assuming in part, the STEM-PD clinical trial, uh, which was many years in the making, a lot of different funding apparatus, um, taking many forms ranging from the private philanthropic funds from NICEF and institutes like it uh, to national funding. And then, of course, industry money, right? You need the industry money necessary to, to get these therapies over the finish line. Uh, and that finals, you know, Arun was joking about glamorous and he was like, glamorous, glamorous what? Uh, it's a slog, right? And, and that slog, it looks very different. Uh, from the philanthropic funding, high risk, high reward, proof of concept work, right? Um, and it can't be denied uh, that part of that difference is based on the fact that Nova Nordisk, in, in this case, sees great potential for human benefit, of course, um, but also has the coffers to get through these expensive trials and is able and willing to assume that risk, presumably because there's an expectation of major profit, right? I mean, I think that goes without saying, not cynical at all. Uh, while I understand the necessity for this virtual cycle, underlying research, I mean, that's the way it's always gone. That's how you, you fund research development and ultimately translation of any drug uh, or therapy, pretty much, when you got to do these large trials. But the cynic in me, of course, has doubts about companies assuming custody of these therapies. You just got to look at like the last 50 years in the drug industry and you see this theme, persistent theme of profits being put over patients. So, I mean, I get it again. I'm not a child. You've got to do it. We got to get these therapies into people and there's no other way. We need this big money industry. But do you think, and I want to look maybe on the bright side of this, uh, do you think there is a similar risk with cell therapies being handed over into the custody of these profit companies that are run by boards? Or because these therapies are curative, uh, does the curative nature of a therapy, is there possibly for like a different framework and outcome that you could see? I know it's hard to predict. I hate to put you on the spot here. You're just supposed to do the science, but you got to think about this stuff, right? So there's many questions in one there. Uh, and just as a side, it's not stem cell therapy for Parkinson's, for example, is not really curative. The disease pro continue to progress. It's the symptoms that are stopped and uh, the function of the lost cells are replaced by the neurons. That, but, but absolutely, the whole field changed 
when there was a commercial interest in cell-based therapies for Parkinson's disease. This is a field that I worked in for a long time. Uh, when I entered the field, it was a dead field. Uh, no one was interested in either uh, academic funding agencies or not companies at all. Um, the companies are absolutely needed uh, both for their uh, money and expertise in in doing this developing global therapies. And there's you can't get away from that. I think when the danger comes in is if the academic scientists start looking for either what the companies want, but it doesn't even have to be like that. If the academic scientists are looking for proofs to support their current therapies rather than to scrutinize all data uh, very carefully. Hmm. And somehow it, it can be so then when there's a lot of commercial interest in a field, and I've seen this happen to other fields, uh, not stem cell therapy, but other fields close to mine, is that it, it can switch the field from being kind of explorative and discover new um, new mechanisms, new, new findings to prove that you're right. Mm. So if you set up experiments to prove that you're right, uh, then you're in trouble, I think, or the field is in trouble. Um, and this is not only uh, due to the commercial interest or involvement in this, but the commercial involvement is a contributing factor to maybe scientists wanting to prove that they're right rather than to take a more holistic approach and be open for um, interpreting uh, wider data and, that, and new uh, avenues. Yeah, it's a... It's a complicated situation, a lot of players involved in this area, but I mean, regardless, this is an amazing time to just be in this field and to be doing clinical trials in the pluripotent stem cell field with so many, quote, shots on goal, so many opportunities, so many different um, avenues being pursued. Um, and, you know, they're being explored, these, you know, pluripotent stem cells are being explored in clinical trials for all sorts of diseases. We're focusing, of course, on neurodegenerative diseases here on this particular show, but we've chatted with researchers and investigators in, um, in the diabetes field and cardiovascular disease, just to name a few high-profile examples from around the world. Um, but while things are accelerating and it's kind of a golden age in stem cell drive clinical trials, this concept of using pluripotent stem cells for clinical applications, as you've alluded to, has been around since the beginning. Right. I mean, but in your opinion, why is this, this time, 2024, the best time ever for stem cell derived clinical trials? Is it mostly just because we've had this foundation of discoveries to build on and we've reached this point kind of organically? Or is it the non science factors, the regulatory financial side of things that have helped enable us to get to this point? Is it a combination? So, what is it about this year, this day and age, this golden age um, that has enabled us to get to this point? I think we reached it organically. Uh, there's been a lot of, so following the, the field from the first uh, human pluripotent stem cells, there's a lot as we discussed earlier about how do you culture the cells, how do you control their uh, expansion. Um, but then a lot of, we needed to learn a lot about these uh, stem cells, how they self-renew, how they differentiate how you make them, what does it mean to make them in one way or another. The next step was to make specific cell types. Uh, and that just takes a, a long time. And the field hasn't been mature to go into clinical trials uh, until in these years when it has. So, so, so I think it's 
it's several discoveries in the field that has taken us to this point. Now, I think it's a bit of a ketchup effect because I think there's many, many, many projects now that are at this pivotal stage where they are ready for clinical translation. And then the first projects for us are already in clinical trials, the work that we've done, uh, not the least the uh, interaction with the regulatory authorities will pave the way for faster translation for coming projects. So there, there is a there is a natural progression in the field, and one needs to to let things take the time that it takes to develop the best therapies. With that said, you can't wait forever because there's a patient in need of cells, there's diseases that don't halt while we test yet another factor to make even better cells, and so it's kind of in Swedish we say that we have to rush slowly. Meaning that some, you know, you always need to get to the endpoint the fastest way possible. Sometimes that means that you move fast, but sometimes that actually means that you move really slow. Um, and I'm really happy that the, the the clinical trials that have been initiated and approved today uh, have had a uh, it's been an immense effort on uh, focus on safety of these cells. But what the field do not want is quick cells going to trials too quickly imposing safety risks that's going to derail the whole field so i think that in the end we are progressing to global therapies as fast as we possibly can even though it might seem slow well slow and steady right that's what uh that's what wins and i think you know uh people who are affected by this disease you know it's never fast enough right but i think that we're at an in an age now where people who are affected, many people who are affected by these diseases uh, may have hope uh, and have cause to be much more optimistic about seeing a treatment in their lifetime. Um, and I think that that's realistic, whereas I think maybe 20 years ago, naively, there was a lot of promise that maybe didn't have a lot of foundation. Now the foundation's there. And while this is the greatest time, as Arun said, to be in the field, I don't think this is peak time. I think we're still on the ascent. Um, and that's what's what's so exciting. Uh, and, you know, no better place than Lund. Yeah. And as you see, patients are desperate and I fully understand this, but there's no one also to remember that no one is helped by unsafe or ineffective therapies. So uh, there, there's no reason to move ahead until this has been proven prior to going to trial. So, yeah, slow and steady. Yeah, I mean, all, all the people who have been negatively affected and they're substantial by these snake oil mesenchymal stem cell clinics, you know, some of them to the enucleation of their eyes uh, would say that they could do without uh, 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 fast and, and messy. Um, but yeah, back to Lund, you know, very rich history there, founded in 1666, like 50 plus years ago, that's forever. Um, and as you would expect from such deep roots, uh, has accounted for countless advances across many fields, science and medicine, artificial kidney, ultrasound, uh, also, you know, more general science, the inkjet printer, which circled back into now printing cells, um, uh, Bluetooth, uh, the list goes on and on. Um, indeed, apropos to this conversation, dopamine, as you probably know, was discovered by pharmacologist Arvid Carlson at Lund in 1957. Maybe it's that ownership of dopamine that inspired you and your colleagues there to take on this incredibly ambitious lift of the STEM PD trial. But uh, I'm guessing it's probably more to it than just that history there, Dr. Carlson. So tell me, what is it? Tell us, what is it about the environment at Lund that makes it well-suited uh, to fostering the work you guys are doing there? A little plug for university for the trainees out there. 
Yeah, I don't I don't know if you're so far off by saying they were started by Eric Carlson and at those early times, but there's been a long history of uh developing explorative therapies for Parkinson's disease uh, and advanced therapies. Uh, and these are work, the first fetal tissue trials were conducted here in Lund by uh, Anders Birklin and Ulle Lindvall, and they've really set up a trajectory of uh, translating experimental findings to clinical trials. So we have the basic science in place. It's an excellent university with, you know, we have uh, the Lund Stem Cell Center is a great place to work, but this, there's many centers like that are as good as the stem cell center. But what we have done is close to the clinic. We have a tradition and history of working translationally. We work together in uh, clinical scientists, research nurses, experimental scientists, regulatory scientists. So, so, so we really have a, a drive and it's promoted uh, and rewarded to take uh, uh, findings to clinical trials. And uh, you guys are young, but when I started, this was kind of a, people call it a dead end. Don't do translation, you'll ruin your career. Hmm. And then working at a center where this was promoted really made helped you in being convinced that actually, well, it may be a dead end. I don't care. This is what I'm going to do, but it doesn't have to be a dead end. So, uh, and now the, the tones are changing and translational science is what everyone wants to do or that's very promoted. But it was uh, 15, 20 years ago, it was seen as a dead end. Yeah, I mean, times have definitely changed, but really it's that foundation that we're talking about, years and years of rigorous basic science done at places like London around the world to actually get us to this point. And so thank you so much for being here and sharing your journey with us. Um, it's it's really great to see where the field is right now. But before we're going to let you go, we're going to ask you a couple of non-science questions, sort of broader questions for our trainees to, to help pick your brain a little bit. So first, if you're actually not a scientist, and we're very glad that you are a scientist, what would you be? Well, when I was growing up, I wanted to be a travel agent because I grew up in a very small town in uh, rural southern Sweden, and I wanted to see the world. And that was the best I could, the best occupation I can think about to see the world. I don't think I would have been a travel agent, but I think I would have done something that lets me out let me be out in the world exploring cultures and uh, um, kind of global affairs and, and things like that. Yeah. And I mean, that's one of the best things about being a modern scientist is indeed you get to travel the world, right? Yeah, I love it. It's uh, I have collaborators all over the world. You get to, that gives you access to the best science, but it also gives you access to the funnest way to work and observe uh, I mean, I love going to Japan and observe how they run the labs there, how they, you know, it, it's a way to 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 be part of the world somehow, and I I think I would have found that role, uh, but in in a different occupation. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And so, the last question we have for you: What's the the best piece of advice that you've ever been given, professional or not, that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, I mean, I've had many. I've had the fortune of working with very many many good mentors but maybe Anders Birkeland here in Lund that I worked closely with for many years he's a very balanced person and he he once said that you never make it or break it with one thing and I think that's a good piece of advice for scientists because often you feel like you make it or break it if you get this ERC grant or the NICEF grant or if you get a nature paper and everything is Kind of folks, if I get this nature paper, everything will be fine. If I don't get it, everything will be ruined. But in the end, 
it's not like that. You, you, you have many, many chances to perform. You have many chances to fail. You have, uh, and uh, your success, success in your career actually depends on all these things cumulative. So there are no uh, make it or break it events. Well, you certainly made our day with this conversation, Malin. Uh, we've enjoyed it. Um, and it breaks my heart to have to end it. But uh, it's been a joy. And I want to thank you again for sharing all your insights and keep on going there. I mean, this STEM PD trial is really a shining light for all of us. Um, that and the other few trials for the time being that are out there. I think uh, we all look toward them really avidly, you know, can't wait to see the results and are really honestly more than anything grateful as you started to say at the beginning of this conversation that you're putting it out there um just showing that we're being one transparent and 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 you know providing a measure uh and a template for for us all to follow so thanks again for sharing with us and thanks for for doing your good work yeah thanks for inviting me it's been great fun all right you guys that brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on X at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Until next time, thank you guys so much for listening.